Welcome once again to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan. My good friend and co-host Luke Savage is on vacation. Uh, Actually, it would appear once again that he has run away from home. Uh, Luke sometimes gets in a rebellious mood. He's prone to pouting and door slamming and yelling, you're not my real father. And sometimes under cover of night, he'll pack a grocery bag and hop on a Greyhound bus to the big city. So it happens now and then. We're used to it. Uh, I believe he is safe and he'll be back soon. But in the meantime, we have a guest. It's our friend from across the pond, co-host of the Real Politic podcast, Jack Frayne Reed. Jack, thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm thank you. You. Uh, I'm I'm very happy to be on Michael and us, and yeah, I'm I'm hoping that we can make some progress today in our negotiations for the hostage release of Luke Savage from uh, the hellscape of the United Kingdom. <laughs> Thanks so much. And it bothers me to see so many people making apologies for the terrorists in this case. (laughs) Uh, Actually, before we get to the meat of the episode, can I ask just a sort of general question? uh, How are spirits on the British left right now? Because whenever I hear about the UK in the past, I don't know, four months, uh, it's been pretty bad. Whenever I see a clip of your guy, Keir Starmer. I know you're a huge. My guy. I know you're a huge fan. My close personal friend. Uh, he's always saying something really irritating to me. Uh, just <laughs> how are spirits generally? Uh, regarding uh, Sir Keir Starmer, uh, very bad, very bad. It looks like he will probably win the next election with a large majority. And look, it's not it's not good when the Conservative Party win elections in the UK, but I, I don't think it's good either when a Conservative Party wins an election and it's, uh, you know, it's just got a different name and logo. I think it would be very bad, very bad for the left if, if uh, Starmer is seen to have proved. I don't think it would be actual proof, but you have to move to the centre or the right in order to win that sent quite a bad message i think to uh well basically anyone who wants to actually like change the country for the better i was sad to see i think just last week labor had officially dumped sort of a commitment to transgender rights from its platform yeah and that's just a sort of typical thing that i feel like i keep seeing from labor oh yeah it's every i mean a senior labor shadow minister who our our, our good friend luke probably hates almost as much as i do with his uh, in-depth knowledge of British politics and politicians like Wes Streeting he said something like Starmer's Labour should go out every day and slaughter some sacrificial lamb that would piss off the left basically so that that same day actually they said yeah no we're gonna what was it there's some crap about like protecting women's only spaces like I don't believe spaces exist that are specifically designed for like quote unquote biological women. I don't think, I don't think that that is an actual category. But that's what Labour say that they will protect. Uh, and on that same day, they announced that they will not recognise Palestine as a state when they get into government, which is not some not one of Corbyn's crazy anti-Semitic policies, by the way. That was a policy introduced by Ed Miliband, who uh, is the only Jewish leader that Labour ever had, and is a centrist who serves under Starmer. So that's how far they've moved to the right. But we've had mass protests like the Palestine situation as awful and inhumane, tragic, uh, you know, tragic obviously doesn't really sum it up because it's a man-made catastrophe that has energised people. 
And so to leave this answer on a slightly more optimistic note, I don't think all is lost just because, um, you know, our best representation electorally is... uh, Well, actually, I think it's even generous to say that the left's best representation electorally is Sakir Starmer. He doesn't represent the left at any level. But, um, you know, not all is lost, just uh, just for Labour Party. I've been very moved seeing Jeremy Corbyn become this, you know, if not the leader of the protest movement in Britain, then, you know, a very visible leader. Mm. Um, And, you know, it comes with a sort of bittersweet tinge to it because, you know, we know he has only a certain amount of power, but the power he has used, he has been tireless. So, I don't know, my admiration for him is really at an all-time high. Uh, Same, absolutely. Like, I was a huge supporter of Corbyn throughout his whole leadership, but but my admiration for him has not dimmed since, uh, well, Keir Starmer tried to trash his entire reputation, purged him from the party, etc. That's only made me more steadfast in my support of Corbyn and the way that he has been, yeah, consistently out there speaking up for Palestine is just a further testament to, you know, his uh, incredible moral conscience and uh, consistency and humanitarianism. And uh, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And it's actually, it's been really heartwarming to me to see people like you from other countries left-wing people admittedly who are Corbyn's sort of target audience but nonetheless the way that he is kind of revered by elements of the international left even while he's vilified in his own country is uh, is reassuring to me yeah I mean it's it's been a very politically clarifying moment and if the last four months haven't underlined what was really going on with the smear campaign against Jeremy Corbyn I, I don't know what would yeah 100% tangentially related to this subject i saw you just did an episode on something i've also been hearing a lot about lately the israeli saturday night live yeah uh, yeah sort of snl equivalent that i believe mr brett gelman just hosted um yeah did you did you watch it I've watched, I believe, six of their English language sketches that they put out on YouTube to propagandize to uh, American and British viewers and Canadians, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure there's a sizable audience for Israeli propaganda. I mean, I'll just say, you know, uh, comedy has no political party membership, you know? Uh, <laughs> I thought it was Likud. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure you thought it was really funny, right? Like, I, I saw that... that clip that was going around of um columbia anti-semity what was that oh, <laughs> sketch they did about blue-haired college yeah 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 it's just basically like look at these students aren't they gay like <laughs> you know there's, uh, and then there was um the one with michael rapaport as dumbledore oh, the w- god i love him yeah yeah he's an incredible guy actually um you know directed a really good rap documentary uh about a tribe called quest a few years ago but that you know generally his his engagement with hip-hop culture is slightly more <laughs> Um, incredibly funny let's say <laughs> he, he once not well not once he many times has called himself the gringo mandingo those are his words not mine he, he, i'm quoting him he said that on his podcast many times i, I do Incredible. i do have to separate the artist from the art with him a little bit because i was just watching only murders in the building the second season and he shows up in the first like 30 seconds <laughs> you know you're just confronted with him you know just doing his character actor thing 
And during the minute and a half that he's on screen, I thought, fuck, you know, this guy, he's one of the last great, you know, New York character actors. Oh, yeah. yeah. Last great bozos. One of the guys who was in like every Woody Allen film in the 90s. Like he's, uh, yeah. (laughs) And and he's he's so great in that Woody Allen stuff because you can imagine Woody Allen being like, okay, what does a working class person look like? Well, Michael Rappaport (laughs) is kind of blinkered Upper East Side perspective of what a working class guy is. Yeah, it's great. I mean, yeah, Rappaport is uh, an electrifying screen presence as those who've seen him as a uh, racist TV executive <laughs> in Spike Lee's Bamboozled. Oh, so good. Racist cop in Sticky Fingers A Day in the Life. Racist neo-Nazi in John Singleton's Higher Learning. Well, no, he's a great actor <laughs> with a wide range. How does he How does he <laughs> inhabit these roles, I want to know? What sort of uh, method, technique does he use to get in these headspaces? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, it's, a, it's an open question. Well, look, this is going to be a self-indulgent episode. I wanted Jack to come on to help me work through my complicated relationship with today's subject. Uh, I was actually on your podcast, Real Politic, a little while ago to discuss the post-Python work of all the members of Monty Python. And yeah, it was an incredible episode. Uh, we had a very encyclopedic <laughs> discussion of you know, splitting airs and fierce creatures and <laughs> clockwise, I assume, yellow beard, you know, all all that stuff. The canon. Yeah, I'm sure that anybody who wasn't familiar with that stuff would have been very lost. But for those of us freaks, I, I believe it had a lot of information. So I've asked you to come here with me to celebrate the 10th anniversary of Monty Python Live Mostly, which was the blockbuster 2014 reunion show held by the surviving members. <laughs> After decades of turning down any opportunity to reunite, they performed these 10 sold-out shows at London's O2 Arena. It was hugely lucrative. I followed it through every stage of its development, and uh, it's bad, I would say. (laughs) And I've seen it maybe half a dozen times over the years, just as background noise. You know, it's something that I keep coming back to for some reason. I'm curious... First of all, what is your relationship with Monty Python and what is your relationship with this chapter, this final chapter of their career specifically? Well, uh, my relationship with Monty Python is that they were incredibly formative to me in terms of getting me interested in comedy and film and TV or, you know, all those kind of art forms or, or mediums. Like, basically, when I was about 10, I think some Monty Python was part of this sort of collection of vintage but like more adult DVDs, like comedy DVDs that I, I got for my birthday. Um, there's definitely Faulty Towers in there and I think Black Adder as well. Just, you know, standard British stuff. And Python was like the craziest one, obviously. That was like the most surreal, the most uh, far out thing on offer, which really appeals to you when you're like about 10 and you don't necessarily understand all the jokes. But you understand that it's kind of weird and creative and fantastical. So yeah, they became very influential on me. 
And then I, I obviously got into other things and stuff, but I always liked them. And then fast forward to 2014, they reunited and I saw this show live streamed in my local cinema on my 20th birthday, which is like possibly one of the low points of my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, like I was, I was with a couple of friends and I can't remember like... Were you prepared for what it would be? Like, did you go in with your expectations and check? I don't think I was aware of uh, quite the sort of uh, musical review, Monty Python on Ice kind of thing that it would be. Uh, <laughs> I, w- I was a bit of an artistic zealot when I was around 20. So for me, the idea that you would like turn Monty Python into Spamalot was sort of, uh, aside from the actual Spamalot show itself, which I understood as a, you know, I understood the utility of that to pay the pension schemes of the Pythons, as I think Michael Palin put it. But yeah, I don't, I don't don't know it seemed pretty much the opposite of where i was coming from in like my general artistic perspectives at the time i think i was just kind of going through quite an unhappy period and being stuck in that cinema i'm not gonna lie it was very very hot and it smelt crazy in there like it was absolutely (laughs) packed with a lot of people who are older than me uh very a lot older than me who probably thought i smelt really really strongly of um of weed basically but but i was just like oh no this is a very very constricted kind of place to be and so yeah all in all not one of the best birthdays i've ever had but the show itself played some part in it and for like full disclosure like i've not been going through the best time recently this time though i was able to kind of disconnect a little bit from the show and just it didn't feel like a personal insult to me this time although <laughs> uh, i'm going to conclude this uh, this monologue by saying i do agree with will that it's not good. Yeah, well, (laughs) I'm grateful to this show for a few reasons. One is simply because it sort of satisfied a curiosity. Mm. There had been for years, you know, negotiations and talks of some sort of reunion. And because it's a group of, at this point, five members, used to be six, uh, but at this point, five who, you know, are very different people with strong personalities, as well as, you know, in some cases, busy careers, they could never agree on where to do it, when to do it it how to do it and so i was happy that this came along to sort of finally put a stake in it it's (laughs) like okay fine here it is this is what it looks like Uh, i'm also grateful to it in a way that it sort of articulates the sort of worst case scenario for what it could be it's like (laughs) it's a useful tool of being like yes this is the natural life cycle of a thing it starts with inspiration and everybody's young and hungry and they're innovating and then you get older and you get rich and you get fat and a certain drive in you dries up a little bit to mix my metaphors. Yeah. And then also you become a brand and the innovations that you've done get sort of ambient in the culture. And then it ends with being a massive mega bucks review with dancers and special effects and crowds of tens of thousands of people. I don't know. You know, it's like the Rolling Stones, well, right? Well, literally, I don't think that was lost on the guys because they did that tr- that little advert for the shows where uh, they had Mick Jagger and Charlie Watts sitting there saying, oh, well, it's just a bunch of old gits trying to relive the glory days, isn't it? Uh, the Monty Python, the shows at the O2. Oh, yeah. Monty Python, are they still going? Yeah, they're doing ten shows. How do you want to go? Ten shows? That's... Wow, that's pretty amazing. It must be corny, you know. I mean, I bet it's expensive. But, I mean, who wants to... Who wants to see that again, really? I mean, it was really funny in the 60s. Well, the first show sold out in 40 seconds. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I mean, still a 
bunch of wrinkly old men trying to relive their youth and make a load of money. I mean, the best one died years ago. Maybe back in the 70s, it was fantastic. I mean, it was the funniest thing. I mean, I mean, you've seen it all before. I mean, and yet, and yet it is. Yeah. Uh, yeah and no, it and is. also, <laughs> the creative mastermind of the show was one Mr. Eric Idle, who, you know, if you know anything about him, if you've read his autobiography, you'll know that um, he actually does want to be the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. Like, say what you will about the Rolling Stones, but like, music was a pretty integral part of their thing. When you go and yeah. see the Stones, <laughs> yeah. like you, you, you hope to get a large number of songs, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas with this, as I said on Twitter yesterday, you'd get the sense that Python's repertoire was about like 60% song and dance and maybe 40% sketches, maybe like 10% John Cleese doing improv about the Daily Mail. So in their career, I would say there are sort of two competing trajectories. On the one hand, they have this reputation as these innovators. When the show began in 1969, they wanted to sort of upend all the conventions of British sketch comedy show at the time. It wasn't topical. The greatest innovation was that it was stream of consciousness. A sketch wouldn't necessarily climax with a punchline. It would go for as long as it was funny, and then it would drift into something else. And there'd be the Terry Gilliam cartoons that would often facilitate the transitions. It would appear to sort of tell a dreamlike story. Some sketches would be long, some would be short, some would be almost like complete little plays, and others would just be one idea. And there would be these cartoons that would come in. And this stream of consciousness logic is something that later shows like Mr. Show or Tim and Eric Awesome Show would pick up and develop further. And the idea also was to not rely on catchphrases, audience-friendly, like recurring characters or that sort of thing, to be constantly surprising and innovative. Now, immediately, financial incentives of going on tour and doing albums and books and movies that would sort of rehash the old material and rely on catchphrases and that sort of thing started to become very strong. So on the one hand, they're both innovators, and they're also some of the consummate rehash artists of the 20th century. And this show is the natural culmination of that second trajectory. It's all this old material, all material that was written 40 years ago, material that was written for a low-budget BBC show or an album or, you know, a movie here and there, and then it's blown up completely out of proportion into this spectacular review. And I watch this and I find a lot of opportunity to meditate on the fragility of comedy. Yeah, I found a lot of opportunity to medicate while watching this. (laughs) (laughs) So I had this feeling when I was watching it of seeing, you know, one sketch after another and thinking, was this was this funny at one point and and how was this funny and why is it not funny now yeah I, well, I remember when you came on real politic to talk about splitting airs and the russells too and all the great late python work including in fact this reunion we we sort of got all the various reunions in there like 1999's python night on bbc2 etc classic um, which is much better than this by the way i'd take python yes. night any day python night had new material almost half an hour of it but <laughs> For a whole night, they had almost half an hour of material. It was also a little less pretentious, wasn't it? It yeah. was, you know, kind of back to the basics. And Eric Idle was barely involved. 
Yes. He did one sketch from his house in Los Angeles while the others were in the UK. But uh, yeah, yeah, when we talked about that, I remember you saying that, for example, all their sketches that kind of play on campiness, homosexuality, that kind of thing, felt a lot more kind of subversive when they had a living gay member of the group. Otherwise, it does just kind of seem like, I mean, I was going to say it's not like the most homophobic thing in the world, but it kind of, (laughs) it's just like a bunch of people playing soldiers marching around going ooh whoops where's me trousers or whatever it is a bit (laughs) it doesn't have the subversive edge of challenging bourgeois morality that it may have had in like 1970 or how about that that other sketch that comes later camp judges or as I think it used as it used to be called puffy judges (laughs) they've changed the name of that sketch where outrageously gay judges who sort of strip down to you know BDSM outfits basically oh I've had a bitch of a in the high court. Oh, oh I could stamp my little feet the way those councillors carry on. Oh, don't I know it, love. Oh, oh, dear. Objection here, objection mm. there. I remember hearing an interview with Cleese, I think, where he was talking about Peter Cook and Dudley Moore when Beyond the Fringe came on the scene. Peter Cook did a sketch as a vicar. You know, he was a kind of wacky vicar. And everybody laughed at it because it was a laughter of liberation. Because up until the Second World War and after, there was a culture of deference in British society. You don't make fun of the prime minister. You don't make fun of the queen. You don't make fun of, you know, people in positions of high authority like vicars or judges or the army or things like that. So then in 1969 to have like a gay military who are doing a gay chant and one of the members is gay, it's a more powerful gesture than it is in 2014. Yeah, and again, it's just a dance number, just another one of these extended dance numbers. It's like, you ever you ever wondered what if the penis song was more than 30 seconds long and had three oh additional God. verses? One about vaginas, there's one about anuses, there's another one about penises like there's a bit in the one of the behind the scenes documentaries you recommended me actually where John Cleese is like we're making a cut to the penis song I thought it went on too long I was like I'm glad someone's still thinking about this stuff I'm I'm glad you bring this up because listeners will recall that in the movie The Meaning of Life, there's a sort of 30 second scene where Eric Idle is at the piano and he's doing a Noel Coward impression. And he does, you know, isn't it awfully nice to have a penis? Just a really quick song. And in this show, it's blown up. I also saw this show live streamed in my local theater. And this big penis song production number happens about 12 minutes in. And I just remember sinking in my seat thinking, oh my God, this is awful. Mm. This is so unfunny. It's sort of presenting itself as incredibly subversive. Can you believe we're doing a number about penises and vaginas at <laughs> at the O2? The women get uh, their own verse now. We've updated it for the 21st century. <laughs> Speaking of that, how did you like I Like Chinese as a number? Oh, well, I, I, I thought Eric Idle made an admirable effort to make it slightly less racist than it originally was <laughs> and include some lines about how they're good at being 
economy. <laughs> <laughs> my, fav- my favorite new lyrics were, they're still a little communist. Oh, yeah, yeah. Amer- <laughs> Americans don't need to fret because China has bought all their debt. Now, this is, this is classic comedy. Sass- like Eric Idle reading fucking, like, Andy Borowitz. Like, <laughs> yes! He's hit the nail on the head there. I actually should, at this point, give a little context. Uh, the reason that this show happened was because in the year 2013, the Pythons lost a court case waged by a man named Mark Forstater, who was a producer of Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and apparently some uh, vague arrangement had been made uh, in 1975 that he would be, for financial purposes, the seventh Python. He would be entitled to a one-seventh share of royalties from Monty Python and the Holy Grail and any sequels or spin-offs or that sort of thing. And when Spamalot became a blockbuster musical, he started looking at his checks and seeing that he only got something like a 114th share. So he took them to court and he won the case. So the Pythons suddenly had over a million pounds of legal fees and royalties that they needed to pay him. So they very quickly decided to get together and do this show. Now, I was telling Jack that there are two pretty incredible, I think, documentaries that are better than the show itself about the lead up to and the production of this show. One is called And Now for Something Rather Similar, and the other one is called Monty Python, The Meaning of Live. And they're both kind of, you know, fly on the wall documentaries about the Pythons dealing with this show. You you watched them, right? Or you saw bits of them? I've seen both of them, but I I uh, have not rewatched And Now mm. for Something Completely Similar or whatever it's called. I, I've rewatched uh, The Meaning of Live last night. I'm glad you rewatched it because I quite like The Meaning of Live, and this gets <laughs> to my complicated relationship with this show because Python was very important to me growing up, and uh, I just love spending time with the fellas. Yeah. And so yeah. There, there comes a point, you know, even in the live show, if you've got Cleese and Palin on stage together and they're doing the argument clinic, doesn't really matter that the timing is off. It's fire. Uh, yeah. Now, those two guys better timing than most in the group as well. That's true. Uh, And you watch The Meaning of Live, the documentary, and it's clear that all of them are completely checked out (laughs) except for Idol. Allegedly because of his musical theater experience, but really more because he was a real eager beaver. (laughs) He was handed all of the preparation and planning for this production and he turned it into a very Eric Idol type show. How would you describe Eric Idol's, like, sensibility? Smarmy, I think was was the word (laughs) that, uh, like, immediately came to mind. Like, I mean, look, he is funny. They're all funny, but maybe not as much these days but you know he he has this kind of uh, love of showbiz and he he likes i guess things to be kind of campy not not camp in the graham chapman sense but rather just you know he likes everything to be a bit kind of big and colorful and loud and brash and again not brash in a kind of like mr creosote throwing up over the entire restaurant kind of way more more sort of the way that i guess there's a brashness to their every Sperm is sacred musical number in that same film. Although um, that wasn't an Eric Idle song, I don't think. That was um, like Palin and Jones. No, he he merely colonized it and made it his own. <laughs> uh, how would I mean, how would you describe Eric Idle's sensibility? Uh, you know, reading his autobiography, which is a parade of name drops, 
one after another. His greatest ambition seems to have been to become embraced by the American showbiz community. <laughs> and in the various, you know, histories and oral histories of the group, he was always the one who was most in favor of some sort of reunion, some big lucrative reunion tour. Part of that, I'm sure, is the fact that his solo career is, I would say, the least inspired of all of them with the possible exception of Graham Chapman. I, I think so. I mean, The Ruttles, the, the original, not The Ruttles 2, arguably worst film of all time, but The, the original <laughs> Ruttles is good. Rutland Weekend Television, I've seen only the odd sketch, but, you know, it's 70s work by a python. If it's at all of the standards of The Ruttles, I'm sure it's got some funny stuff in it. But yeah, since uh, the late 70s, precious little funny material from Eric Idle, I don't think. And when you read about the group dynamics in the early days, you know, it's much like the Beatles or any of those groups where it's this sort of powerful confluence of complementary personalities as well as frictions that would inevitably lead to the group to, you know, self-destruct, this sort of combustible combination of energies. You read that a lot of the writing is dominated by Cleese and Jones, who represent the sort of left and right brain of the true. Cleese, very rational and logical and very interested in sketches that have a beginning, middle, end. Jones who's interested in atmosphere and absurdity and breaking apart the conventions of the medium. And the other members all fit somewhere in the middle. Watching The Meaning of Live, the documentary, it's fascinating how none of those tensions exist anymore. It comes across that all of them basically get along, but don't really particularly seek out each other's company. They all have the air of they're doing jury duty, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I feel like they have a genuine affection for each other, but it is in that way of a kind of um, a family member. It's like somebody who you've known for decades and you're not going to actively hang out with them, but you don't dislike them. (laughs) You've got a certain amount of warmth for them, but you couldn't spend all your time around them because it, it would drive you fucking crazy they show affection to each other but they also in, you can see in the documentaries take the piss out of each other a lot when I watch this reunion show it feels like a sort of powerful illustration of yeah the natural life cycle of things and I find it both kind of moving but I also find it well cautionary tale is too strong a word but when you're young it's very easy to be on the bleeding edge of things be on the cutting edge of the medium that you're working in and know exactly what buttons to push if you want to subvert it. And then as you get older, you know, Cleese mentions in the documentary, the problem with getting older is, you know, all the jokes. Exactly. That's why his uh, GB News show is so funny. It's just got too many jokes because <laughs> he knows all of them. <laughs> well, and, and this is the thing, like, to some degree, that's true. Uh, and so you check out on all the nuances. Mm. Uh, like, maybe the jokes remain the same, but there's a lot that becomes different. There's a sort of cautionary tale of this of what happens when you check out by the way have you watched his gb news show (laughs) no i've listened to your episode on it and that's about (laughs) it have you revisited it since uh, the episode well i've been meaning to but it seems he's got a little bit more on his transphobia kick in the episode since we since we first saw it which i man i don't know i don't know i was liking it when it was just him and stephen fry having a nameless conversation oh yeah fuck stephen fry as well after his uh new alternate christmas message or whatever which was just like i'm not even gonna go into that actually but (laughs) no no actually i want to go into this i want to bring this up because i want to know just from a british person what exactly is stephen fry's deal in your country what role (laughs) does he play because i look at him and i think like wait 
Was he an actor at one point? Is he a public intellectual? What is his fucking deal? Somewhere between the two. So he was in, in the 80s, he was in Blackadder. He was in... Oh, uh, of course. Fry right. and Laurie with Hugh Laurie, who obviously crossed over to America in a much bigger way. And Fry sort of ended up like he hosts... I, no, I don't think he hosts it anymore, but for a long time he hosted this quiz show called QI, uh, which stands for Quite Interesting, which sort of tells you about the sort of role that Stephen Fry occupied in British life, which is, he's that guy who, you know, he knows quite interesting things and he can save them in quite an authoritative way. And so that's how he ended up on Christmas Day broadcasting an, ult- an alternate Christmas message that was just like, basically anti-Semitism is rising since Hamas's terrible attack and Israel's retaliation. It's just, you know, is that thing where you have to put lots and lots of adjectives for uh, what happens to Israelis but none for what they actually do. I, I don't like the way that he carries himself as a sort of British head of state or sort of <laughs> moral authority in Britain. I don't feel that he's earned it, much as I like Blackadder. No. While we're talking about annoying media figures, there are cameos in this show by two of Eric Idle's friends. Uh, one specifically I just want to bring up. The Galaxy song is followed by a guest appearance by uh, Dr. Brian Cox. Oh my god, Professor again. Brian Cox. Fuck. I well, just... what, what the fuck is this guy's deal? I don't like him either. <laughs> when he showed up, like I just... I I sent you a DM that just said "fuck off, Brian Cox" in all caps. Like I was just... he's he's sort of he's sort of like a cool scientist. Yeah. He's sort of like what if what if Bill Nye was sexy? Like that's his fucking thing. That's it. I hate him. That's it. Yeah. I I, I find him very interesting. And then and then Stephen Hawking shows up as well in a little sketch to like run over Brian Cox with his wheelchair. Yeah. I mean I mean Stephen Hawking obviously in the news recently. Uh, certain fake news stories spread about him recently. But nonetheless, there are some questions. Um, well, he's dead, but there would, there would be questions for him to answer. That there, there was like in 2017, there was this Guardian headline that was like Stephen Hawking calls for Jeremy Corbyn to resign. And so I just oh. imagine like Eric Idle and Brian Cox and Stephen Hawking all just like having a good laugh like round Eric Idle's pool about how like Corbyn doesn't understand science. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's what rubs me the wrong way about Brian Cox specifically that he's a sort of like epic science guy Mm. it's one of my least favorite archetypes what are some of your other highlights of the show well yeah so i was disappointed that the the great never be rude to an arab was reduced to a short muzak instrumental i don't Mm -hmm. suppose uh, any of the boys fancied taking on some of the the choice language in that one a lot of the musical numbers stood out to me uh the nudge nudge techno remix oh my god i wanted to die hearing that appalling Um, and and (laughs) <laughs> there was there was uh, in, a, in a similar vein there was that money is the root of evil song is, holy shit is that the so s- that was uh, that was a new song i think yeah It was called the Silly Walk Song, and to me, it's the ultimate of everything that's sort of lame about Monty Python. Like, when I think of their, like, epic centrist politics. Yeah. I mean, they've already got songs about, like, money, and I swear there's an, a Monty Python money song. Yeah, yeah. I've um, got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm amazed he didn't bust that song out. <laughs> Eric Idle, it takes him a long time to, like, get a few songs together that aren't about money. Like, that's, like, 90% <laughs> of his 
his songwriting repertoire. <laughs> but no, it was shit, wasn't it? It was like uh, they're doing the silly walks to it and they're just going money, money, money. But what I thought might be a sort of bit of shonky, outdated satire was that er- initially it, t- it changes into more of a kind of a reprise of the Nudge Nudge techno remix uh, it, <laughs> after a bit. But prior to that, it sounds a lot like Gary Newman, the uh, famous Margaret Thatcher supporting 80s British New Wave musician. Um, sounds a lot like Cars or something, you know. Duh, 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 yeah. duh, duh. And I was like, is that like Eric Idle taking the piss out of uh, Gary Newman? Like the, the centre-left satire of Eric Idle? I don't know. Maybe it's not supposed to be Newman. Like, I was looking at the Wikipedia page for the Not the Messiah Oratorio, which I believe you saw the premiere of. Yes, I, I saw <laughs> Not the Messiah when it premiered in Toronto, Canada, in I think 2007, I want to say. For those who don't know, Eric Idle turned Life of Brian into an oratorio. And so there would be, you know, big orchestral versions of like, you know, he's not the Messiah, he's a very naughty boy, (laughs) you know, that kind of shit. Or what have the Romans ever done for us? Fucking hell. And you're just sitting there in the balcony thinking like, this has the same relationship with something that is funny that an Andy Warhol silkscreen of Marilyn Monroe has with Marilyn Monroe, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It looked um, astonishing, but what struck me going through the track listing was like the different musical styles that Eric Idle was choosing to satirize. Like it would be like a type of Spanish romantic song, a romantic ballad in one. And then and in another part, it would be Eric Idle impersonating Bob Dylan. Oh God, I remember that. I remember that so well. On the classic Rutland Isles CD. Oh wow, now that's a deep <laughs> cut right there. His, one of his failed comedy albums. No, I remember sitting there in the balcony for you know what seemed like 20 minutes as eric idol pulled out the guitar and did you know one of the freshest approaches for satire you can possibly take the bob dylan's voice is hard to understand bit so i assume this was like pre-electric dylan as well oh yeah obviously there is by the way an episode of saturday night live from 1979 that eric idol hosts where bob dylan is the musical guest oh i I know anyone to check that out yeah it's like pretty peak you know i messaged you about that a while ago because because Dylan, right, and, D- right. Dylan and Idol have a hug at the end and it's an incredibly awkward embrace. And also <laughs> that was Dylan's Christian era. So he's singing like these fire and brimstone songs of religious devotion on that show. Great performance by, right. by uh, our man. Bob, that is not, not Eric Idol. Hell yeah. Slow train <laughs> coming. Great album. Yeah, man. Totally. What else stuck out to you in the show? The very way that it starts is just risible. So, you know the ableist slur beginning with R, right? You're all familiar with that, the one... I have heard that one, yes. <laughs> you heard that one before? I'm sure John Cleese has total free reign to say that on his GB News show. Um, and you know what, in Doctor Who, how he travels in this big blue police box and it's called the TARDIS. Can you put those two things together to, to imagine... And, and you know, the, the woke mob won't let you say that anymore it's the joke is both too funny and too powerful because authoritarians fear laughter yeah yeah i mean you know i guess the the woke stars they they managed to score a couple of victories in getting never be rude to an arab turned into an instrumental and the lyrics to i like chinese mildly rewritten so uh i, I think eric idle felt the need to stick it to them once and for all by by having the guys come out of this tardis plus 
this something TARDIS. Which is, I mean, I'm sure that there's like a million early internet memes making the same joke. Like, early internet. (laughs) People aren't, that's going to be a hack joke at this point. And it definitely was in 2014 as well. I was just like, who thinks that fun? That that's like comedy on the level of like Eric Idle's collaborations with Brian Cox, where they're just being smug about science. Hello, is this the right room for an argument? I've told you once. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. You didn't. Yes, I did. You didn't. Yes, I did. You didn't. Yes, you didn't. Oh, sorry. Oh. Is this the uh, five-minute argument or the full half? Oh, hour? just the five minutes. Just the five. <clears throat> Last night on a whim, I ended up downloading all the Monty Python albums, so I'm I'm tempted to go through and uh, listen to those. I didn't in the end last night. I think you're going to have a good time because on those albums, that's really when they're at their peak. And if you hear the album version of a sketch like the Bookshop with Cleese and Jones. The timing is just so precise. They actually were, you know, as writers and performers, you know, pretty Mozart level when they were at their peak. And you don't necessarily have it here. But, you know, one of the reasons why I kind of fell into this rewatching the Monty Python reunion kick is that over the holidays, I watched some episodes of Flying Circus. And I was struck by there's a feeling in it that I hesitate to say the word timeless, because like, obviously, the material is is very much of its time. It's archetypes and taboos and cliches and conventions of television of the time. And this reunion show shows that if you take that stuff out of its context, it withers and dies. But what is timeless is just a sort of feeling that's in them, a restlessness with the conventions. And it's much like, I don't know, if you watch A Hard Day's Night or something like that, it captures, as if in a bottle, this energy of the times. And and that energy is what what you can still hook into. And I think the last thing I would say is, I don't know if you followed that Cleese is apparently making a stage version of Life of Brian. What? They can't help themselves. And Cleese is uh, doing this. Cleese is doing it, and it's not a musical. Damn. Um, he's cutting Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Oh, I did hear about that, because Eric Idle complained about that, didn't he? Bit of a war of words between <laughs> them and the media over that. This also became a little controversial because he's including the scene with Loretta. You'll remember in the movie, there's a character, one of the radical left revolutionaries played by Eric Idle wants to be a woman and he wants to be called Loretta. And there's a big comedy scene of like, you can't be a woman, you don't even have a womb. Well, we can fight for his right to be a woman. And it's a joke about the excesses of left-wing tolerance. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's still including that scene. And he said words to the effect of, it's strange to me that this scene, which nobody complained about for 40 years, you know, suddenly people are complaining about it. And I would not let that scene off the hook even in its time. Yeah. You know, the movie was a satire of the left. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But also to do that scene in the year 2024 means something different. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a bit. It's in the, sad to me. There's a bit in the reunion show where uh, I think it's like Terry Jones tells Cleese, who's doing the uh, Albatross sketch. He's like, you're not even a real woman. And I, and mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, that hits a little different now. You, you, you know, even though I love the Albatross sketch, although I was disappointed. And I, I appreciate you have your North American audience have sensitive ears. I'm not going to 
to save a word, but uh, I was disappointed that Cleese didn't bust out the the big C bomb like he did at the uh, Hollywood Bowl for that sketch. But you can't have it all. I also noticed they cut a bit of his uh, the smoke that Cleese had for the Daily Mail from the finished film. Um, there was a bit about oh, using tragic. it using it to line parrots' cages in the original live stream, I believe. Uh, but they did keep a bit about how Paul Dacre, the editor of the Daily Mail, I was listening to the wireless this morning. Very interesting. Apparently, the editor of the Daily Mail, Mr. Paul Dacre, has just received an arsehole transplant. Oh. Yeah. I, I heard that. I heard that too. The arsehole rejected him, I hear. I don't know if that was uh, improv or Cleese demanded that Idol write that into the show where he would refuse to do it. Um, but I do love John Cleese's beef with the Daily Mail in spite of his uh, reactionary views. I've said this before, but I loved how the first episode of The Dinosaur Hour, which I fully thought, well, he's a British comedian of a certain age. He'll go in on trans stuff for his first episode. But no, he starts it with a full-throated attack on The Daily Mail. Yeah, well, he just fucking hates them because I, I guess they like printed embarrassing shit about his many divorces. I love that he was just given the power to have a show where he just indulge you know it's like robert de niro in casino where he just gets this show where he can you know air out any petty beef <laughs> with the gambling commission that he wants yeah yeah and, and and like like you say his main beef yeah his personal beef the thing that gets him up in the morning is his beef with the daily mail but unfortunately if you put a guy like Cleese in front of a camera for so many hours you know he is gonna start getting onto the trans issue eventually <laughs> yeah very unfortunate. well we'll always have the waldorf salad episode <laughs> Yeah, man. Um, thank you again for coming on the show on such short notice. We have search teams out looking for Luke. You know, uh, we have police at every bus stop in the county, and hopefully we'll recover him. But in the meantime, we're very happy to have you on. Oh, thank you, man. It's been a pleasure as always. Hopefully you can do it again soon. I'll have you have Luke on our show again soon. And, well, I'll let you know if I end up meeting Luke d- uh, tomorrow, actually. Like, my sleep pattern has been very erratic, so I'm worried I may not make it into london in time but we'll we'll see it'll be a pleasure to do so i hope that the uh, mp for holborn and saint pancras has not drunkenly uh, run him over mistaking him for a delivery <laughs> driver thank you and, t- and tell luke that we love him here at home and uh his his father and mother are very sorry and uh, we're looking <laughs> we're looking forward to him coming back awesome man well yeah great to talk python with you anyway uh now what now watch this drive <laughs> yeah you got it in they say I'm martyrs and won't face the truth But I am just too wrong in the tooth I started to deteriorate And now I've passed my own cell by date Oh, I am not spring chicken, it's true I have to pop my teeth into tube And my old knees have started to knock I've just got too many miles on the clock So I'm a wrinkly Still miss me